Romans chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on our ministering, or he that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation, he that gives let him do it with simplicity, he that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness. We've been talking, starting last week, about the the gifts that God has given to his church. They're all grace gifts. We sang that hymn, he giveth, he giveth, he giveth again, he giveth more grace. And part of God's giving to the church are the spiritual gifts which he has given to every one of us. So the title of this message is Differing Gifts, But One Purpose. And it comes from Romans twelve six, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. It's also found in 1 Corinthians 12, 6, where it says there are diversities of operations, or operations there means effects or activities of the Spirit, but it is the same God who works all in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit in the distribution of spiritual gifts is given to every man to profit with all, or means for the common good, for the, the good of the church. Again, differing gifts but one purpose. Now, why do we have spiritual gifts? Because Jesus gave gifts to the church, knowing that the church needs special equipping. It needs these spiritual gifts to be able to function in the world to do what he would desire the church to do. And just remember, I've often said that the the church, if you want a simple definition of the church, the church is the extension of the life of Christ on earth. That's really what it's all about. The proper exercise of the spiritual gifts that God has given to the church will produce a healthy church, and that's what we all want. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As every man has received the gift, that's the gift from the Holy Spirit, spiritual gift, even so minister the same one to another. Now, unfortunately, the majority of people who, who attend the church never, never really get involved in the ministry of that church. One estimate I read said that only 15 to 20 percent of the people who attend churches are actually active in a ministry of that church. So what we, what we have, and you, you may have heard this before, in many churches is like a football game. You have 50,000 people in the stands desperately in need of exercise and 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest. I think, I think Bud Wilkinson said that, the old football coach. So just be clear about this. Spiritual gifts are different than the fruits of the Spirit. They come from the Holy Spirit, but they're different. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit... And by the way, we, we often say fruits of the Spirit, but actually it's a fruit is karpos, it's a singular noun. So there is the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifested in different ways. So what are they? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against these there is no law. So you have... The fruit of the Holy Spirit, nine manifestations of what that would look like. 
So think of it this way. The fruits or fruit of the Spirit come from within. Because when we're saved, what does God do? He puts the Holy Spirit within us. And as we submit to the Spirit of God, then those fruits will be manifested. So they come from within through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life. The gifts of the Spirit come from without. They have really nothing due to us. They're entirely bestowed, sovereignly given, the Bible says, by God. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, we have the responsibility of good stewardship. Stewardship is God giving mankind responsibilities to fulfill upon this earth. You can go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says, God blessed them, and he said unto them, the first couple, be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion, rule, or authority over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then in Genesis 2.15, we often, this is a verse that's easily missed, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So there was work before the fall, but not, without, not with thorns and thistles. So work was productive. Work, we might say, was really enjoyable, and, and it, it wasn't laborious as it was after the fall. In domestic life, that means home life, a steward is someone who has the responsibility of a household and the management of household affairs. Now, according to the New Testament, that's the wife's responsibility. She is the steward of the home. She is the household manager. Joseph was the steward over whose house? Potiphar's house. In Titus 1.7, an elder is called a steward of God. Well, what does that mean? That means that he is to manage the household of God, the faith, the church, the household of God. And he has responsibility to the Lord for how he does that. And the people have a responsibility to respond to the elder's stewardship over the church in a godly way. 1 Corinthians 4.10 says, As every man has received the gift, that's all of us. Nobody is excluded. Every man has received the gift. Even so, minister, which means serve. Put it to use, the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So Charles Bug defines stewardship in the Holman Bible Dictionary as utilizing and managing all resources God provides for his glory and the betterment of his creation. To fulfill his kingdom purposes upon the earth. And that includes the good management of spiritual gifts that God has given to each member in a local church. And since they come from God, right? Fruits of the Spirit come from when? From within the the spiritual, the, the fruits of the Spirit from within, but spiritual gifts come from without. Since they come from God, they are to be exercised for his glory not for our own glory. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in one sense his own already. 
It's a Christian quote. I think it was C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Now, the church of Corinth, you're familiar with the book of Corinthians. In my 32-plus years here, there's only two books of the Bible that I've preached through twice. One of them was the book of Hebrews, which is a long book, but I've preached through that twice because you really need that Old Testament foundation to properly understand the New Testament. And the other book that I preached through twice was 1 Corinthians because I didn't want us to be like that church. So you know, they served as the bad examples, so to speak. Well, we do know this. They, they received a tremendous blessing from God. And what was that? It was an abundance of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and he says, you come behind, which means you're not lacking. You come behind in no gift. You didn't lack any gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they were tremendously blessed, but they were not good stewards over the spiritual gifts they were given. They failed to exercise those gifts properly and uh, more than any other church, they, they suffered from carnality. It means they, they, they worked according to the flesh. 1 Corinthians 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Brethren, I would not have you be ignorant. And God does not want us to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Not at all. So what was the problem? The Corinthians lacked both the understanding of those gifts and they lack the discipline in how to use them for the good of the whole church. And one classic example is the way uh, that they use the, the gift of tongues. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12, I'm just going to turn there for a moment, remind myself what that says. But in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 12, it says, Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, Let it be for the edification, that means the maturity, the building up of the church that you seek to excel. That was Paul's goal for them there. If you go down and and see the lack of understanding, go down to verse 20, 1 Corinthians 14 says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. What does God want? Before he called them babes in Christ. God wants his people to be mature believers to be able to digest the meat of God's word, not feed on the milk of the word. He says, do not be children in understanding. Even when it comes to our worship, we are to sing with understanding. right? Not just go through the motions. Do not be children in understanding, however, in malice, you know, which would be evil. Be babes. Don't want you to practice that at all. But in understanding, be mature. And then he goes on and he says in verse 21, in the law it is written, with other men... With other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Now that's a quote, a direct citation from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 11. And then in verse 22, following that citation, he says this, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And on the day of Pentecost, what happened? They spoke with what? Other languages, not gibberish. They were, they were not unknown 
tongues. That word is not in any Greek text. They spoke in a known language. And it was a sign, actually, of judgment upon apostate Israel. Because God says they refused to hear the language, the clear language of the prophets. I will speak to them in another language. They will go into captivity and they will hear the language of the Babylonians. So it was a sign of judgment. It wasn't what, what, is, what you see today and how people are practicing it today. Now, last week I preached from Ephesians 4, and that focused on the gifts that Christ gave to the church when he ascended up on high. And the gifts there in Ephesians chapter 4 were gifted men. The gifts were the men themselves. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. The apostles and prophets, and we have a little picture here of this for you. The apostles and prophets were part of the foundation of the church. And that was the first century foundation, the apostles and the prophets. From the second century on, all Christians are part of the superstructure. Do we have that picture? See if we bring this up here. Just a simple way of knowing it, if we can get it. If not, you could just write this down. All Christians since the second century are the superstructure. All Christians since the second century are the superstructure. When you, when you have a building, you have a foundation. And then what happens? You have, you know, First floor, second floor, everything is built on that foundation. That's the superstructure. All Christians since the second century. The apostles and the prophets were the first century foundation. And who's the chief cornerstone? Jesus Christ. Other foundation can no man lay except that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. All right, in Romans 12, Paul mentions prophecy and teaching again just as he did in Ephesians chapter 4. He also mentions the gift of exhortation, giving, ruling, mercy, ministry, and those are all service gifts. God intended those gifts to serve the church. So what, what it then is the purpose of spiritual gifts? The purpose of spiritual gifts is threefold. Number one, Everything that we do is to be done to what? Whether we eat, drink, or whatever, we're to do everything for what? The glory of God. So the purpose of spiritual gifts is to glorify Jesus Christ. That's why you have been given a spiritual gift. The second purpose of spiritual gifts that we would have is not only to glorify Christ, but the second would be to equip the saints. Equip the saints. So this means that God has given a gift for you to glorify Christ by putting it into use individually. Each one of you has been equipped to glorify Christ. And then the third, third purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the church. So how does the church built up? And how is Christ glorified? The church is built up by every individual Christian using their spiritual gift. When those gifts are operational in a church, the church is edified. And that word simply means built up. 
And if you're edified and built up, you're able to do what God wants you to do as a local church body. Ephesians 4.15 says this, and I'll just listen to this. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ. The only foundation, right? The, the only head of the church. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together. And then he adds these words. By that which every joint supplies. How is it, how is it held together? By every joint. Just like your human body in the analogy in 1 Corinthians 14. According to the proper working of each individual part. Causes the growth of the body for the building of, of itself in love. So those two phrases, every joint supplies, each individual part. What does that tell us? That your contribution to the body of Christ is extremely important. So back to Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophecy according to the, to the measure of faith or ministry. Let us wait on our ministering, teaching on teaching, exhortation on exhortation. He that gives, let him do it with simplicity. He that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with truthfulness or with cheerfulness. We're only going to talk about two of these this morning. Prophecy, which I already started last week, but it's vitally important that we understand it. And then ministry. In the Old Testament, the prophets, what? They spoke for who? Themselves? No, they spoke for God. As a matter of fact, the saying, thus saith the Lord, i got to say that the right way, right? Thus saith the Lord, appears frequently in the Old Testament. I think in the video we saw this morning, he mentioned like 400 times. The Bible attests to its own authority, thus saith the Lord. But if you, if you trace that saying, thus saith the Lord, you would find it 148 times in the book of Jeremiah, 127 times in the book of Ezekiel, 35 times in the book of Isaiah. Prophets spoke on behalf of someone else. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh. Well, not a god like the false gods of Egypt or not, a, not like a god, like the true god, but in the sense that they would, be, they would come and they would, do, they would do miraculous things through the power of God. I have made thee, Moses, but I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be thy prophet. Well, it simply means spokesman. Aaron, your brother, will speak for you. Well, what then were the functions of a prophet? The functions of a prophet. Number one, predictive. Predictive. They foretold the future. So this is a revelatory function. They didn't have any of the knowledge of the future themselves. They received that knowledge from God. It was revealed to them, and then they told the people what God told them to say about what is coming. The second function of a prophet would be sharing God's word in the present. So we call that forth-telling. Forth-telling. Now, nobody does num number one today. Nobody's 
predicting the future, hearing it from God and predicting it. But we can tell people what's coming, right? To the extent that it has already been revealed in the Lord. So we fulfill a prophetic function in this sense. I can say to you, thus saith the Lord. And when I quote scripture, that's true, right? But I'm not getting any revelations from God, any prophetic revelations from God. And by the way, the majority of the prophets' function in the Old Testament was not foretelling the future. It was this. It was sharing God's word in the present. But we do know this, number three, they possessed supernatural knowledge. It came from God. And then number four, they performed miracles. And not all of them, but many of them did. When you get to the New Testament, the New Testament prophets were a continuation of the same office and function of the Old Testament prophets, and I put down in your notes, who warned of judgment. Many times you'll find that. What did, what did God tell Jonah? Go to Nineveh and say what? Hey, you've got three days, buddy. <laughs> you know, king. Three days to shape up and repent. They warned of judgment. They delivered a message from God, whether contemporary to the people of their own time or far distant in the future. Zechariah, the Bible says, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied in Luke 1, 6, 1 chapter 1, verse 67. Anna, the prophetess, was present when Jesus was brought to the temple and she prophesied in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. John the Baptist was a prophet. Jesus was the prophet. As a matter of fact, Jesus said of John that among those born of woman, there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And that's a really interesting statement because the Bible also says John did know what? He, did, he didn't do no miracle. But boy, he came boldly on the scene and he, he dressed flamboyantly and he said, Thus saith the Lord, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, John was a, quite a prophet. And after G Jesus and many other individuals are called prophets in the New Testament. James Boyer says prophecy in the New Testament church was not mere preaching. It was, in one sense, miraculous, inspired preaching. Now, we don't have miraculous preaching today. But if people, in other words, there's nothing miraculous about what I'm doing or what other people do, but God can take a very ordinary word and do a miraculous thing through it, right? He could convert a soul. And there's nothing really more miraculous than that. That's the greatest thing of all. So, inspired preaching. Holy men of God spoke as they were what? Moved by the Spirit of God. That's, that's what the Scripture says. Like prophecy in the Old Testament, it was saying the New Testament prophets, thus saith, saith the Lord, it was a supernatural gift whereby the prophet was able to reveal to his listeners, listen to this, new truth from God. Listen to this clearly. Nobody is revealing new truth from God today. The canon of Scripture is complete. If they were, to claim that, how would you test that? How would you be able to test that? So nobody is revealing new truth from God today. So the office and gift has ceased, just like that of the apostles. 
1 Corinthians 13, 9 says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And, you know, there's big theological debate over the meaning of that word between cessationists like us who believe that the, the, those miraculous sign gifts have ceased and the, and the others who believe that they continued. And you could argue all you want with that, but God's word is sufficient. And I believe, just as Paul said, tongues shall cease, and the tense of the Greek verb means that they shall cease in and of their own. In other words, when, God's, when the function, the function will, will cease when the purpose has been completed. And it's always been the purpose of God that determines the length of a spiritual gift. God doesn't do everything, everything, exactly the same as he always did. I remember one time I had a lady knocked on my door, and, and she had written this massive work. I mean, it was, must have, she told me she was seven years, seven years in the completion of this commentary or whatever it is on, on, on prophecy and stuff. And she asked me if I would read it. Well, what do you say? You know, I said, well, you know, just, just leave me. She says, it's a copy. I, I read three pages, and I mean, I would not go any further. The three pages told me everything that I had to know, you know. And so she came back and wanted to know what I thought about her work. Seven years, mind you. And I says, well, I just only got to page three or whatever it was. And uh, it's not what the scripture says. So we got into a big thing because she was prophesying and saying all these things and and, uh, she, and when I said, well, you're misusing some of those scriptures and so forth and so on. See, it's got because a fun day, you know, in life of a pastor. And she, <laughs> and she goes, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. How, how many times have you heard that, right? Well, he, Jesus is, right? He's immutable, right? That's a divine attribute. He's never going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but it doesn't mean he always does everything the same way as he did in times past. So, as I said, if men or women were receiving new truth from God, that would mean that the canon of Scripture is not closed. And you need to remember this, that God put controls on the prophets in the church. In 1 Corinthians 14.22, it says, Prophecies serve not for them that, that, or for, not for them that believe not, but for them who believe so just the opposite of tongues. Tongues for unbelievers, prophecy for believers. But then in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, he says, there's controls. Let the prophets speak two or three. Two or three. And not at the same time. And let the other, the other prophets judge. So they were to judge it. 1 Corinthians 14, 32. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. So what this is telling us is that prophetic utterances, even when the gift was operational, a prophet could get in the flesh. And he could be, thus saith the Lord. And it really wasn't. So they were, they were, they were subject to the interpretation and the spirit that was in the other prophets. In other words, prophetic utterances in the early church were not infallible. They were not infallible. God had put these controls in place. And you know, we know this, and this is really very important. The scriptures warned of false prophets. I talked about that last week. One big problem with false prophets, and it's, and, and it's not true of all of them because 
Some of them is, they're, they're, they're as phony as a $3 bill. And you can see it right off. But a lot of them are well disguised. Just like false teachers are well disguised. Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And remember what he told the, the, the Ephesian elders, that there would be threats coming from within to try to ravage the church and threats coming from without. You will know them by their fruits. Do not gather, men do not gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistle. So they come oftentimes and they are disguised. They are, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And you need to be aware of that because there are an abundance, no lacking of false prophets. You know, I don't know if you follow what, what's going on. I mean, it's really hard to keep up with everything. Jim's a pastor. He could tell you that. I mean, there is just so much stuff out there. You know, it's hard to keep up with it theologically and the movements and all that's taking place, you know. Um, and if you follow anything about so-called Christianity in South Africa and in Zimbabwe and even in Nigeria and other countries like that, you know it's been dominated by extreme forms of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. And Elijah Duby, a believer over there, says manipulative preachers, pastors, men and women, and prophets, men and women, should be a prophetess, have become commonplace. He says they prey on desperate followers or on followers who are eager for a miracle. How many people are eager for a miracle? Seeking after signs. He says Africa, with its vast array of economic, social, health, and political problems, has provided a very fitting turf for such opportunists. And not only Africa, South America, many other places. He says, apart from enriching themselves, because that's what these false preachers do, false prophets do, these prophets propagate a kind of gospel that is a complete departure from basic Christian teachings. First John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but try the spirits. These people claim to be speaking from God. They're really speaking from another spirit. And we're to test them. We're to try them by the word of God. And the reason is because many false prophets are gone into the world. Look, you've heard of Trinity Broadcasting Network. Trinity Broadcasting Network is filled with false teachers. It's, it's filled with false prophets. And CNN too. Not quite as bad, not quite as radical, but you'll find plenty of false teaching there too. Or is it CBN? Christian Broadcasting Network. <laughs> I get my... my designations just CB, cnn just trash that forget it you know all together cbn christian christian quote broadcasting network all right let's move on from that now that you're awake how much time do i have left i like that box my view i can't see all right so i got i'm going to try not to go as long as i did last week because it's a little bit warmer i think the air is working better isn't it feels it is Amen.
Who prayed for a miracle? <laughs> Romans 12, 7 says, or ministry, spiritual gift. And the word is diakonia, Greek word, diakonia, deacon. Let us wait on our ministering. And this is a tough one. Uh, most likely, I put here, refers to those who perform functions within the church body, which may or may not be seen as a, a typical spiritual gifts. You know what's interesting? I can't tell you how many times people have come to me in the course of my you know, term here, uh, and they've asked me, when did you receive the call to ministry? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Now, I know what they're meaning. I know what they're meaning. You know, preaching, pastoring, and so forth. But, but my, my rebuttal is this. Aren't we all called to ministry when we got saved? Weren't you called to ministry? To minister? To serve? The moment that you were, you were saved? Mine may be different than yours. You may not have an office or the public function of preaching or teaching. But every single one of you as believers has been called to ministry. God saved you out of the world and he put you into ministry for his glory so that you can build yourself up, your own muscles, and then once you're built up, you're able to strengthen others and then the whole church is built up. And that's the way it is to work. So the deacons are an obvious example of those who minister, serve in particular ways. But there are many others who serve in different capacities. So I think it's a broad term that encompasses many areas of service, including but not limited to practical and material things. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians. The Grecians were Greek-speaking Jews. They were Hellenists. Against the Hebrews, who spoke, by the way, Aramaic for the most part, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve, the apostles, called the multitude of disciples, and they said unto them, It is not proper that we should leave the word of God and serve. Diakoneo is the Greek word. Same word that we get deacon. And serve tables. So the apostles are saying, you know, it's not for us to leave the word of God and serve tables to do this function. Wherefore, brethren, look out among you for seven men of honest report, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, how did they know that? Not because they spoke in tongues, but because they manifested the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their life and wisdom so that we may appoint them over to this business. This is a very important matter. We will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the Word. Now, if I have to do things that you can do, then it means that I'm probably not doing something I should be doing, right? Now, we all, we're all ready to jump in, right? We're a team. And I'm, it's not beneath me to do things that, you know, whatever it is that's required to get done. But if that begins to encringe upon my primary purpose, which is the prayer and the teaching of God's Word, then who's going to suffer? You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Thank God for unity, right? 
Blessed unity. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, proselyte of Antioch. But it says that it wasn't right for the apostles to leave the word of God and serve tables. The predominant use in the New Testament of that word table is a banquet table. And one of, the, one of the specific uses, and it could very well be the use here, is a banking table. And a banking table was a, a stand, a flat, you know, it was like a flat table, and it was, the, in the Gospels, was the table of the money changers when people would come in and change their currency out. And they would do it for a fee. So the banker there operating the table would collect a fee, the money changer. So this could be referring to some financial type of transactions here. So many, many commentators suggest that. They said the early church followed the pattern of the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue. Every week, alms were collected from the people to feed the poor. That's money. And this money was used to buy food, which was given out weekly by the synagogue and daily by the early church. So the apostles appointed seven men to take charge of that ministry because there were problems. The, the Greek-speaking Jews were feeling that they weren't getting their fair share, and it was creating a problem. So the seven men were to take charge over that so they could give them, the apostles could give themselves to prayer and preaching. You know, when, when I, I could look back when, when I started here a long time ago, and you know, there were very few people, and uh, it, it was very difficult doing a lot of the things uh, by yourself. You know, trying to fill all kind of holes. And um, thank God that he has supplied. He has supplied. He giveth, he giveth, he giveth again. And he's given the church many men and women. And he continues to add to that supply. And, I, and I'm optimistic because, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of young people here. And I see them learning by example. And you young people, you are the future of the church. You are the workers. You are the workers just waiting to get in and do more and more. And they they really learn best from from their, their parents and from the other examples all around them. So the gift of ministry is task-oriented, but I think it's distinguished from the gift of helps. You all know the gift of helps in in 1 Corinthians 12.28. Helps in 1 Corinthians 12.28 is an interesting word. It it comes from the the Greek anti-lambano, which means to take hold of. Okay, so the gift of helps to Take hold of. So what does that mean? And I'm just throwing this in here. It's not in Romans 12. But a man or a woman with the gift of helps sees something that needs to be done and they take hold of it. What does that mean? They get it done. If they see a trash can that needs to be taken out, they don't let it overflow, they take hold of it. They get it done. And you could just take that analogy. You know, they're doers. They're not watchers. Standing by watching other people do it. They grab hold of it. 
But ministry in first or in Romans twelve, the broad term I think is directed more to the church as a whole, and it has a more specific uh, task in some ways that are that are not related to the gifts of the Spirit. I, let me give you this example. I don't know how this will work, but I thought of it. Even the Son of Man, Mark ten forty five. This is Jesus. He came not to be ministered unto or served. But he came to minister. That's your word for deacon. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Which I think the many means all. The service that Jesus gave was his life poured out in death. And it was not limited to a certain individuals. A few. But to many all. So I showed you this back in Romans 5. Just a good reminder. Romans 5.18, as by the offense of one judgment came upon upon all men, sin of Adam, right, entered the human race, bringing judgment, all men, all men to condemnation, judgment. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Jesus, came the free gift, that salvation, came upon all men to justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, now notice how, notice how he does this, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. But the parallelism there in Romans 5.18 and 19 should be obvious. The many in verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one Many will be made righteous. The parallelism there is is apparent. It constitutes the all men in verse 18. As by the offense of one judgment came upon all men, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men. So what, what is that really, I think, demonstrating clearly? That the many means the all. So Jesus came to give his life a ransom for all. Now, I'll put this up here. You say, well, wait a minute. If, if, all, if, if all, everyone's made righteous, then everyone's saved, and that's false doctrine. That's universalism. No. All men are not automatically made righteous. What does that require? Faith. Justification by what? Faith. Imputed righteousness. So all men are not automatically made righteous by Christ's death just simply because he died. That'd be a false gospel. That would be universalism. Next point. But provision, and this is the key, provision for all to be saved was made in the death of Christ. And those two scriptures, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19 and 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins, John says, and not our sins alone, but the sins of the whole world. So you have to distinguish between the provision and the appropriation of the provision, and that takes us to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. But for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach. Wow, Paul knew hardships, right? Because he wanted to preach Christ to everybody. We, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior, what does it say? Of all men, there is a provision for the salvation of all men, but this makes it very clear 
All men are not automatically saved because Jesus died on the cross, especially or in a particular manner of those who believe. Those who believe. The very fact that the verse says there is a special sense in which believers are saved implies that there is a sense in which unbelievers are not saved. So there's no universalism then. Now, some people say that salvation referred to here when it, when it's, when it says he's the Savior of all, of, of all men. Uh, it must be taken in a non-soteriological sense. That he, that, he saves some, that he saves all men in some sense, but, but not, not salvation. That makes no sense. Because Paul labored and suffered reproach. This is his point. Like Jesus did. To give the life-giving gospel to all men, not to provide some non-soteriological benefit. It violates the context. So the atonement of Christ is limited, not by God's design, but by those who reject it. I've always believed that. Likewise, the benefit of the gift of service that we've been talking about here, or ministry, is not confined to a certain few, but the whole church body, the community of faith. And that was my point in bringing up Mark 10.45, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And we ought to be serving, all of us. People in the music ministry, That's ministry. Evangelistic ministry is serving. The missions board is serving. Those who serve on the Sunday morning hospitality table are serving. Those who help with the potluck and other functions are serving. Those who work in children's church ministry are ministering. They're serving. Those who teach Sunday school are serving. They may be using a teaching gift, but a lot of people who've helped out in Sunday school and so forth don't necessarily have the gift of teaching, but they could take material and they could present material. They couldn't necessarily teach through a large portion of Scripture and exposit the Scripture, but they are serving. The safety team ministry They are ministering. They are serving. You don't even know they're doing it unless you you really will need it sometime. The audio-visual ministry, those guys back there, figuring out problems when they come up, right? They're ministering. They're serving. People back here help me in the office. You know, we only have part-time Nancy and part-time Julie. But other people jump in here. Mark Harrison, Craig. They're serving. They're ministering. All of those ministries serve the church body. They're not, they're, they're not designed specifically for individuals. Like you may have the gift of helps and you can go alongside a person in this church or outside this church and exercise your gift of helps and, and, and help an individual out. Or you can have a gift of mercy and give, give somebody mercy or maybe they're lacking something financially and you, and you, might, you might 
Give them some money. So you do that individually. But if you exercise the gift of giving to the church, it profits the whole church. If you minister by playing music, you are ministering to the whole church, to a group. And I think therein lies the difference. So Romans 12.6, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, now listen to this, Romans 12.6, this is from the New International Version. I like this kind of translation. If it is serving, then serve. We need to become like the show me state. What is it? Missouri? Don't tell me what you can do. Show me what you can do. Don't talk about serving. Serve. Find out how, how to do that and what you can do. Close 1 Peter 4.11 As every man hath received a gift and you all have received a gift. Even so, minister the same through that one gift one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Are you a good steward of the, the spiritual gift that God has given to you? Look, when I got saved a long time ago, long before many of you were ever born, I, I wanted to know what I could do. I, I knew that I didn't know nothing I did know some things that come out of a Catholic background, but I, I didn't know this scripture. So I wasn't going to go up and teach Bible studies or anything like that. I wasn't going to do big things. But, it, but, you know, I knew how to drive a car. So when they asked me to drive a bus and pick up kids all over the city, I said, well, a bus is just a little bit bigger than a car. So it's got a steering wheel and it's got a gas pedal and it's got a brake. I can do that. And Marie was my bus captain. And we went all over Wilkesbury. In the, in the heights in Wilkesbury, just a very bad section of town. And we picked up all kind of kids whose parents wanted the Sunday morning off. And it was just really nice. So we'd take them for five hours and they could do whatever we want and then we would bring them back. But you know, I, I was able to do that. I could run the tape duplicator. I could pass out tracks and fill track stands that we had in my pastor, our church had in all over the Wyoming Valley. They had little boxes of tracks. Uh, tracks. They would be in grocery stores everywhere. So we, those are things I could do. But, you know, that's what it, that's what it takes. You know, and he who, is, he who is faithful in little will be faithful also in much. So don't, don't, don't look to get started, you know, in some big thing. Do what you can do. If it is serving, then serve. Then serve.